Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz, a commissioning editor on the Arts Desk. And I'm Al, the food and drink editor. This week is goodbye. Not for the podcast, I must say, but just for me. So this will be my final episode. And so we'll be fighting back the tears to talk all about goodbyes. Indeed, from the painful, slow death goodbyes of Brexit with comedian Nish Kumar. To talking about some of our favourite goodbyes from fiction and in our own lives too. OK, so I should get this out of the way as early as possible. I'm leaving the podcast, not because I hate the podcast or because Grizz and I have broken up in any way. Um, no, I'm just leaving to spend an extra day with my baby son, Rufus. Which is great for, well, primarily for Rufus, I imagine. Well, I hope it is. It'll be a disaster. <laughs> It'll be lovely for him. Actually, he regrets my decision. <laughs> um, okay, so now that we've got that out of the way, what have you been up to over the past two weeks? Well, this is my first day back in the office for a while because I've been ill and I've basically been watching a lot of TV, including Derry Girls, the 90s comedy that's about living through the troubles and being a teenager and worrying about things like car bombs, but also worrying about lip gloss and whether you're gay and who fancies you and all the other things that teenage girls worry about. Um, It's that's not a good description of it, but it's totally brilliant. And the other thing I've been watching is the second series of Fleabag, which has parallels with Derry Girls, in fact, because Fleabag herself, the main character in this series, has got the hots for a Catholic priest. As we all know, it's not it's not a good idea to no. um, fall in love with a Catholic priest. No, you're on a hiding to nothing with yeah, that one, aren't you? I think so. But anyway, that therein lies the, the fun and the comedy of it. Right, so you've been watching two sexy Catholic comedies. I've been loving two sexy Catholic comedies. I was raised Catholic and didn't really realise that a Catholic comedy was something missing from my life. But having watched these, it's been incredibly kind of cathartic and funny and um, all sorts of sort of mining weird avenues of humour about confession and St Anthony, the patron saint of lost things and you know, meeting someone that you fancy doing Stations of the Cross. It's like, really, this stuff this is just is really funny if you know <laughs> if you know why it's funny. I didn't know you were a Catholic. That makes a lot of sense now, doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> um, how about you, babe? What have you been up to? I've discovered the amazing, baffling world of ASMR. ASMR. Do you know what that is? Vaguely. What does it stand for? Well, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's something like autonomous sensory meridian response, okay. I think. But essentially, it involves a person, often a woman, whispering seductively, discussing something normally extremely mundane, like brushing hair and doing the hair at the same time, or applying makeup. 
but in this case it was to do with food and it was sort of tapping on chocolate and opening things and I went and made a video with the great ASMR artist Whispers Red in her studio which she calls the Tingle Shed. Welcome to an ASMR. ASMR is a is a physical sensation. It's a relaxing feeling, so and it's a feeling that we've never had a name for. I've experienced the feeling all of my life. Um, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a way to self-soothe. Okay, should we do it? There are lots of sort of misconceptions about ASMR. Mm -hmm. The most important one is that people think it's sexual. Um, I was going to ask you that. It's definitely not. Anyone who experiences it, and logically there must be millions of people in the world who do, it's the fifth most searched thing on YouTube. It's amazingly popular. These ASMR videos of people eating chicken nuggets have sort of 40 million views. I'm opening the orange. I can smell it. Is this too creepy? <laughs> so if it's not sexual... You're getting stimulated by the sound of clicking or tapping chocolate or whispering. And the sensation, if you feel it, and I think it's really only people who are sort of born with it can feel it, it's a sort of intense tingling that starts at sort of the crown of the head and sort of goes down into your, like, your shoulders and it sort of makes people very peaceful and helps people sleep. Um, Sounds lovely. It is, and it and it lowers your pulse rate. So it's it's the, I'm led to believe it's the opposite of sex. Don't worry if you're not feeling any tingles or anything like that, because it's very very unusual to give them to yourself. That's another thing. Okay, but were you feeling tingles from my work? <laughs> but it's quite difficult to take it very seriously if you're not feeling it, and you're just sitting beside someone like Whispers Red, who's just turning over a bag of rice over and over very slowly <laughs> and whispering into a microphone you at the same time. You were struggling with that. Yeah, but since then, I have been experiencing my own ASMR. And oh. yeah, I think it's opened a whole new thing. You know, in the future, when I have like acres of time, because I'm not having to prepare for the podcast, <laughs> I can just watch myself do ASMR. So, Grizz, you have been talking to Nish Kumar, your old friend. Old friend, slight stretch. He has been on the podcast before, about two years ago. But I first saw him at the Edinburgh Festival, probably five years before that, before he was famous even. And unexpectedly, for myself, um, I, I didn't think I would like it, basically. It's kind of political comedy with like an angry man shouting at you. Usually, as you can imagine, not totally my thing. But somehow he's sort of doing his angry shouting political man thing in a very charming and winning way. So where do you think most people will have encountered Nish Kumar? Mostly on TV, I would imagine. He's been in lots of sort of comedy political panel shows. But then he also, for the last couple of years, I think, has been doing his own BBC Two show called The Mash Report, which he said is kind of inspired by the American version, The Daily Show, which is basically political satire in a kind of late night funny way and that's what he's doing with the mash report 
It's our final show of the series, and by the time we come back, Brexit should be done and dusted. Although, my concern is that it will never be finished, and I'm going to open series 53 of this show by saying, welcome to the MASH report. Brexit negotiations are still going on. Now over to Rachel Paris for a feature on President Mark Zuckerberg's plans to build an army of Terminators and why it's a great idea. All hail the Zuck! <laughs> He is on tour right now. His tour is called It's In Your Nature to Destroy Yourselves. It is about Brexit, as it sounds. And he's at the Hackney Empire on Monday, the 1st of April. OK, well, let's listen to the interview. I hope you managed to find some comedy in the current Brexit comedy. <laughs> Nish, welcome back on the podcast. Nice to see you again. Uh, the last time you were here was March 2017, and it was a rather different political climate. Since then, your career has flourished, despite the <laughs> chaos. But I'm wondering, is it because of the chaos? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. Sometimes you... Um, I don't know, sometimes I feel like it's the only people who have benefited, really, from the last couple of years are disaster capitalists and political comedians. And I wonder whether at a certain point we start to fall into that <laughs> former category. <laughs> because you must get asked, I mean, it, whether this is a good time for comedy. Yeah. It's, it's something in, that people wonder. It's an interesting thing. People people seem obs obsessed with the idea that this is somehow a great, this must be a great time for me and that I feel really great about everything that's happening in the news. <laughs> as secretly the, gleeful. Yeah, exactly. I think they, they assume... Maybe they think that being a political comedian means you no longer exist in the realms of society. <laughs> like, I've now become a sort of weird stateless, like, ambassador for satire. And I live on a kind of private island with John Oliver. <laughs> That's not the case? <laughs> no, sadly not. Unfortunately, we all have to live in this world as it burns. Um, but the positive thing, I think... And this is a positive thing, I think, more broadly across society is that people are more politically engaged than they have been. I would say in my lifetime, I definitely feel like this is a time where people are more engaged than ever. And in terms of doing political comedy, you know, there was a period where you do it in sort of 2014 and 15 and people sort of roll their eyes. just as if it was something that wasn't interesting to them. And I think people maybe felt like politics didn't really have a bearing on their life. I definitely think that notion is dead. And it's easier to do political comedy because people simply know who the people are and what the kind of principal dynamics are uh, in a way that they maybe weren't aware of um, a few years ago. I mean, your show is, is very explicitly political. It's not shy. It's, <laughs> it's not shying away from that at no. all. So it's called It's In Your Nature to Destroy Yourselves. Sure. I think I saw a pretty early iteration of it I did 19 dates of this tour in September October and then we stopped to do the next series of the BBC two thing that I do and Mash then yeah, yeah and then in January we picked it back up again and you know I was thinking well we, there'll be large-scale rewrites unfortunately brexit remains a like a disaster <laughs> it's nothing has really nothing has really evolved or moved on and so in a weird way, even though lots of little things have happened, broadly, everything is still roughly the same. Well, in that sense, it must be quite a surreal moment to be making comedy because, yeah. as we keep saying, the re the real world is, is really weird. Yeah, it's really weird. And I don't know, there's a certain... I'm a cynical person generally, but even I don't think I could have assumed the depths of the sheer incompetence 
I think even though, you know, I have, I don't think there's any doubt who I voted for in the referendum campaign, but I think at various points I definitely thought, well, they'll have some plan. You know, there'll be some kind of idea of how to execute this. So, you know, we'll just see what the plan is and then, you know, in terms of people who disagreed with it, we will make a decision and we'll... But nothing's happened. They have no plan. It's funny, though, because... You know, there's not there's not much that the rest of us can do except watch all this stuff, which is why there's a sense of fatigue around things like Brexit. But as a comedian, I mean, are you trying to do something different? And what what are you trying to give to people at this moment who come and see your show? I think the thing that you're trying to give people is a sense of relief. I think more than anything else, is just taking the serious things that have been driving them insane in the news, and making them ridiculous and I think just there's a kind of catharsis of all being in a room and all collectively going okay this has really got out of hand and it is a kind of exhalation for me and the audience that's what I felt on this tour it's just giving people a chance to collectively breathe and also in a lot of towns that you travel to the type of audience that I draw, these are people who sometimes feel very alienated from the rest of the their from so the rest of the country. The remain voters in a leave town. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or even just leave voters who think it's going badly, you know? Mm. And you all of those people feel very disconnected. And the biggest, most consistent thing that I'm told after shows is it really doesn't even have to have anything to do with me. It's more just the audience feel relieved when they laugh at a joke and they feel 500 other people laughing at that joke. They feel less alone and less isolated. Uh, and it's especially that's especially true of when you go to leave towns. But even in places like, you know, I've just been in Scotland and even there, there is a sort of sense of relief that the entire country is in. I think if you when you follow these things through the press, you do get the sense that the entire country, or there's a substantial majority of the country, that has quite simply taken leave of their senses. And actually, it is good to remind people that, oh, there are actually people who still believe in facts. (laughs) I've heard you say, though, that that exact catharsis, that can actually be dangerous in a sense, though, because people feel that they leave feeling relieved rather than kind of galvanised to yeah. go and protest or write to their MP or make a fuss and do what we can do as citizens. It can be dangerous if you think that that is enough. It can be dangerous if, if you if you start to confuse me with an activist. Um, <laughs> that can be... That, can, that I genuinely think can be dangerous. But, if it, you think. but it happens. It does happen and it's something that I stamp out pretty quickly (laughs) I think and in the show in a way that I you know I hadn't anticipated myself ever really being but in the show I really do try and make sure that you remind people that this is great but it's not enough you know and the purpose of the show in terms of that catharsis and exhalation is to give people a break so that they feel re-energized and reminding them that there are other people out there should hopefully help them you know should hopefully help all of us to realise that there are numbers of people in this country who disagree and it's about mobilising and engaging. I think the danger comes when a comedian starts thinking of themselves as anything other than a comedian. So this is your first show kind of touring for a while. Yeah. Um, How does it feel to be back kind of, I don't know, on the road? 
I absolutely love it. You know, it's um, it's a lot of fun. I mean, and obviously doing the mass report has raised awareness of who I am and what I do, I think, crucially as well. What, and, what do you mean by that? Well, what you really want in an audience is the absence of mistrust. That's really what you're working towards. And your first couple of Edinburgh shows and then your first couple of UK tours, there's a chunk of the audience that don't know what they've come to. And so you have to kind of convince them that it's good. And now this tour and the dates that we did last year, I've noticed people are have come assuming it's good. So then really all you can do is let them down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the bar is high. Yeah. But... It just means you don't have that 10 minutes of trying to convince people that they're good at the start of the show. So what would you say, I mean, it must be very different doing TV and doing live shows, touring around the country, and it's not necessarily being recorded. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean... How, how do you change your... Do you, do you adapt your comedy? Yeah, you have to adapt your comedy, I think, when you go on television. I mean, just it, there is linguistic restrictions, you know? You can't... <laughs> you, there is obvious words that you simply cannot use on the BBC. <laughs> Um, and in the live arena, it's complete credit and accountability. You so it's freedom and it's responsibility. Complete, it's freedom and responsibility. So if you if it goes badly, it's all on you. Like it's completely your fault, and there's nobody to blame. And if it goes well, you kind of take your full share of the spoils. Television is a slightly different challenge. I mean, I'd like to think that I try and approach both in the same spirit. But there are obviously restrictions. You know, the BBC are great with us in terms of what they allow us to say. And even the legal teams at the BBC, their imperative is to try and make sure that a joke can get through. And they're there to protect you. They're trying to not let you get sued. Yeah. But just there is always going to be that element of control. And that forces you to be a bit more creative. And also it's much more collaborative, which obviously can be frustrating working with anyone other than yourself. But it's incredibly rewarding to work with a group of people. And you know, I really love everybody that works on that show. And we, it's fun. Is touring lonely in comparison? The first two tours were pretty lonely. I, did, I can't drive and I did the tours on my own on trains. And the first tour was fine because I was excited to be on the road. And the second tour, by the end, I'd gone a little bit. I just think it's unhealthy to only speak to people who have paid to listen to you. <laughs> I think that that does something maybe to a human mind that you don't want it to do. So I actually have a tour manager and a support act. So you all travel around together. We all travel around together. It's like being in a little band. It's, it's actually really fun. And I mean, without wishing to be crass, it's a purely financial thing. Um, I, the first two tours I was playing venues that weren't of a size that meant that I could pay a support act and a tour manager properly and so I just couldn't have them and now when you move in that is the sort of luxury of moving into some of these bigger rooms is you can afford to have somebody fun to hang out with in the bar afterwards it's it's much more it's been much more collegiate and a more enjoyable experience I think and do you notice differences as you drive around or as you say, do you think that your show kind of sifts people out of wherever town it might be, whether it's Aberdeen or Aberystwyth or wherever? Yeah, it's, the same type of people. Yeah, it's broadly the same type you. of people. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's there's been the odd person who has not done the requisite googling, <laughs> and then afterwards has contacted me very angry, and you're like, I really tried to. I mean, beyond calling this show Brexit is bad, I don't know how much <laughs> else I could have done to dissuade you from this. But you know, there obviously are leave voters who, and they're a lot of the people who are most delighted to tell you that they find you funny for 
some reason which I think is interesting. But um, I mean, I you know, Stuart Lee, when he came to film his last show, which was also very Brexit themed, he chose to film it in South End, which was a town that, that very heavily voted Leave because a lot of those are the best gigs because those are the angriest people. <laughs> the people that come and see me and Stuart Lee in those towns are the ones who are really sort of getting something off their chest. So you're having to work harder? No, the opposite. No? You, they're so willing to laugh because they are the most frustrated people. And so the gigs, those gigs are often mm. amazing. I mean, the one thing you would say, you know, travelling around the UK, I mean, for the last few years, it does give you a sort of understanding of some of the frustrations and inequalities that drove some of the leave vote. Like, you, you go to town sometimes and you're like, it's depressing you get there and there's really only a payday loans company and a betting shop and everything else on the high street is shut and you sort of walk around there and you're like something is amiss here I guess it gives you a kind of sense of that that you Mm. might not get if you just spent the whole time in big cities Would you describe yourself as a feminist? Yes Yeah I would You're kind of mean to male feminists What do you have against male feminists, if you are one? I am a male feminist. I have, listen, hashtag not all male feminists, but (laughs) there's a, I just find, there's a joke in the show that is a specific routine about men who take their feminism so far, that it starts to feel like they're telling women. They're basically mansplaining feminism. Basically mansplaining feminism. Yeah, there is just, I, that is just a trend that I have observed. And there's a couple of people who, you know, you, you're in conversations and the, a woman is trying to speak about feminism and a man is kind of talking over her about feminism. And you kind of go, I just in one iota of self-awareness here will, would prevent you from maybe speaking over this woman before she has to finish her sentence. No, listen, I'm a feminist. I think all men should identify as feminists. But um, I worry that there are some men who take it a bit far. And I I think that that can sometimes be, you know, it all comes from a good place. But sometimes there is a slight absence of self-awareness with some of these dudes. So thinking about comedy, you know, it's difficult out there if you're in comedy and you're not a man. Do you think not being white has been a help or a hindrance to you in comedy? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, my experience is that it's easier to be a man of colour than to be a woman full stop in comedy. I think that there are still weird stigmas and people say things conversationally that you would never say, like you'd never hear someone say, I don't normally find Indians funny, whereas it's... People are quite Still happy to say that about weirdly women. Weirdly common. Yeah, yeah, weirdly common. And obviously what that means is, you know, it's a classic pecking order where it's like it's harder for women and it's definitely harder for women of colour because there are various boundaries and structures in place. I mean, my sense of it is that from a sort of professional perspective, things have improved for acts of colour in the last... I mean, I, I first went to Edinburgh in 2006 and Edinburgh is a good marker. So the Fringe Festival every year, which is the kind of biggest... It's a trade show come summer camp for stand-up comedians. It's an interesting way to describe it. <laughs> yeah, it's the closest I've been able to get to a full, all-encompassing description of what August is. But there you can see the kind of visibility changing because there are, the city is sort of festooned with posters. Like they're sort of, it's like there's an election going on for no, for nothing, like a pointless election. There's all these sort of posters of, you know, at the time it was various comedians. Now it was me and my friends. 
Um, but you can see visibly the way that the percentages are changing. And it happens in the live area first and it's sort of slowly filtering down into television. And I think then you get into this thing where it, as soon as you increase visibility, you increase participation. And I think that's positive. I think in terms of my background, I can't deny that my ethnic background doesn't fuel some of my anger at the moment towards Brexit because I was um, very much raised in the early mid-90s to think if you integrated and you participated in British society and you spoke the language that in some way the country, that there was a place for you in the country. And I think um, Brexit has shattered that illusion because... It, it, regardless of, you know, it's obviously not all Levos are racist. All of that stuff is true. But the fact is, the campaign that involved the Breaking Point poster, which is, to my mind, one of the most shocking pieces of public racism and the assassination of an MP, that's the thing that broke my heart and the thing that I'm struggling to come back from. So, I mean, from a comedic perspective, it's very specifically that that's fueled the kind of anger that's in the show. So... Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm taking advantage of my position in British society to make comment about it. And it seems like you felt that's something that you've been compelled to speak about, whereas feeling like you have to address race as a comedian. I mean, is, yeah. is that correct? Yeah, I feel compelled to speak on it. I don't think I have to. I think that one of the things that's changing is, and it just happens as you get more and more female acts and as you get more and more... Uh, BAME acts uh, as you get more and more LGBTQ acts the more acts you get the more variety you get and the more you can there is space for entirely apolitical comedy to come from um, women and minorities and so I don't think I feel compelled to speak on it because it's all I can think about (laughs) I don't think I don't believe comedians have any sort of social responsibility more than just to make people laugh you only are going to end up writing comedy about the things that interest you and the things that happen to interest me are the collapse of Western liberal democracy. <laughs> <laughs> Nish Kumar, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Nice to see you again. Thank you. Okay, so listening to that, I was quite struck by this idea that he sees his role as a comedian to sort of give sort of a sense of relief to mm. his audience because particularly I think most comedians are angry and they do it because they're angry and political comedians presumably are They have angrier. a lot to be angry about. Exactly. <laughs> and side and I on. see a lot of them, people like John Oliver and people like that, I feel that they are motivated by you know, specific hatreds for, you know, for Trump or or whatever and that they would like to change people's minds. They want to ruffle things up a bit. So it seems sort of counterintuitive that he would seem to want to give his audience breathing space rather Mm. than make them rile them up I think he does want to rile them up and I think he wants to produce this kind of collective anger but also collective catharsis like he's saying I think I think he does want both but I think the interesting thing I found was that he's saying you know there's a difference between being angry and wanting to sort of transfer that anger to the audience and then also being an activist so you can be an angry comedian who does want to rile people up but that doesn't mean that you're a political activist and you're doing the job of an activist. Like, he seems to draw a line between those two. That leads us on to, like, another thing that I was thinking about, the absence of 
mistrust. Mm. Comedians often might only get a 10-minute slot. And he's saying that, you know, before he became so famous, he would often take 10 minutes to you know, win the trust of an audience. Mm. You know, so they can sit there and think, oh, this is good from the beginning, rather than being like, is he good or is, is he not good? I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And, and actually, it completely makes sense, doesn't it? Like, in any situation... What, what you want at a sort of baseline is the absence of mistrust. Like, you know, if you're if you're telling an anecdote at a dinner party, what you want is the you want people at the very least to sort of believe you and be on your side, not shout you down from the beginning. Yeah, yeah I think human nature. You sort of you can only be your funniest self or your most relaxed self if you have a sense of safety and a sense that like people believe you and are on your side. It's hard to go into a room. You know, particularly when your job is to entertain and to feel like, right, there's a big gap between where I am right now and where I need to be in order to, to win people round mm. and make them laugh and make them trust me. I was at a gig not so long ago where quite a famous comedian started sort of bombing and he sort of was scrabbling around. Who was around. it? You can say. I don't think I can. I don't want to say. It was, it was uncommon. Because, well, Go on. You'll hear why. Um, oh, God. He was scrabbling around, and then he asked the audience for for heckles. And I was, unfortunately, sitting on the front row. So, you know, I raised my hand and asked him why he wasn't funny anymore. <gasps> um, and he said he just he didn't know. Um, um, that is, it's, that kind is... of, it's kind of haunted me um, since. Oh, that, is, that is a horrible <laughs> thing to do to another person. I can't believe it. Um, well, but, I mean, he what did he say? Of, he, he said he didn't know. I mean, he's... I think he was having a bad night. I think he was drunk as well, but... Um, well, that's unprofessional, but I mean that... I mean, his <laughs> act was slightly about drinking. Anyway. Um, wow, okay. <laughs> we can cut that. Yeah. Um, Where do we go from here? It is a killer heckle, though, isn't it? <laughs> it is a killer heckle. Oh, my God. Um... <laughs> I wonder if it make. I wonder if you're meaner because you know what it's like to be on stage. Like I would never say that to a comedian. Never, never, never. That that is a horrible thing to say. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's no, very I funny, haven't, haven't, but it's really mean. I haven't heckled that much in my life, but I think always just in the back of my mind is you know this my great aspiration is to deliver the greatest heckle of all time. If I did that, um, I'd be fine. That would be it. I could retire. Speaking of retirement and your retirement from the podcast, are you a fan of goodbyes? No, I really hate goodbyes. Um, or at least I really, really hate the build-up to goodbyes. And are I you think someone it's... who leaves a party without saying goodbye? Yes, increasingly. That's, I, <laughs> I think, knew it. <laughs> this is great. I think I have a sort of allergy to goodbyes in, in general. But after I've done it, I, I love that. Like at the end of a goodbye, I think there's a sense of, sort of weightlessness mm. and liberation. You know, however much I've been dreading saying goodbye, I feel free. And so that's going to happen in about 10 minutes. I'm <laughs> You're going to stand great. outside and feel suddenly like... <laughs> Weightless. Yeah. Well, what about in in films and books? I mean, goodbyes are... It's like a real trope, isn't it, the goodbye scene? Yes, and obviously the best one ever is E.T., Why is it so good? Because, you know, when, when E.T. says, you know, I'll be right here to Elliot. I'll be right here. I mean, 
I just gave myself a tingle just thinking about it. But, um... Okay. I guess this is it now. Yeah. There are a few, obviously, in, in terms of romantic goodbyes, it's like before sunrise. Yeah. I have a great life. I've <laughs> done with everything you're going to do. You all know, right, all right. Work Good luck hard. with school and all that. I don't think mm. that we are in a before sunrise situation <laughs> right now. Or we're also not in the Empire Strikes Back situation. Of Leia saying to Hans, I love you. I know. And him delivering the most awkward reply ever. It's <laughs> what you should I mean, never it's, say. It's up there with a the great goodbye, but... <laughs> The pressure on those situations, though, like the before sunrise situation, they're at the train station, her train is about to leave. It's that thing where you only have three minutes. What do you say? What can you possibly... Like, you, you can't summon all the things you're supposed to say in that moment, and therefore what you end up saying is sort of slightly naff. I mean, hence, therefore, that many of these scenes of these great movies, you know, from Casablanca to Lost in Translation, mm. um, they're not really full of dialogue because no people... Struggling. I mean, as this recording continues, I will become increasingly <laughs> choked up and inarticulate. Well, that's what's so brilliant about the Lost in Translation one, though, because um, when they are saying their goodbye, and I think the taxi's waiting. Bye. He, does he whisper something into her ear or she whispers something into his ear? And we don't know what it is. And even when he put on the subtitles, which I remember doing the first time, I watched it. There's no, there's no title. We have no words for what that was. It's just. God, I've forgotten that. It's um, and it's kind of the perfect goodbye because, you know, you can imagine all the things it might have been, but we'll never know. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm. Um, obviously, like the best words um, are Hamlet's final ones. You know, the rest is silence. Mm. That's basically it. I had a English tutor who had a theory that goodbyes and, by extension, beginnings and endings are something that is like a plot device and something that happens in literature and in films, but not in real life, and that there's no such thing as a beginning and an ending in real life. And I remember sitting through this lecture and I was thinking, that's not true at all. Life is like full of beginnings and endings in new chapters. Agree. And like going to university is like a huge beginning and ending. I think that they're, you know, they may be arbitrary, all of these beginnings and ends, but that's how we make sense of the world because we make sense of the world through fiction, I think, through mm. stories, things that we tell each other, and they have beginnings, middles and ends. Yeah, when I was ill in bed this week, feeling slightly delirious, I read this brilliant but like quite depressing book called Ordinary People by Diana Evans. It was published last year. It's basically these two couples in their late 30s with kids and both the couples are sort of not working for various reasons and that book is kind of full of these goodbyes which aren't really quite goodbyes they've sort of broken up but will they stay broken up for ever is it you know sort of beginnings and endings just as the natural or or as maybe an ebb and flow that's quite common in relationships in that sense that it's not a sort of dramatic public goodbye with your waving your hanky at the train station but it's the yeah. sort of fizzling out of affection yeah, I'm sure that reflects most people's everyday experiences. Mm. But I just think some basic things of being born and dying, 
they, they are two quite sort of definite things, aren't they? <laughs> that I mean, is a beginning and an end. Even if you're a Catholic. Um, <laughs> it's a shame that we're not French. I mean, I've always wanted to be French. And I if I was going. French, we would have au revoir now, wouldn't we? Or not adieu. Or adieu, exactly. But we don't, we don't have these, do we? I mean, I, I can't end by saying, you know, see ya. <laughs> Later. <laughs> it just has to be um, just goodbye. So that's it for this week. Let us know what you think of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you at everything else at ft.com. And I'll be back in a few weeks' time. We've been Grizz and Al. Everything else is produced by David Waters. And our music is composed by Fatim. How do you feel saying that for the last time? Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Poignant. <laughs>